So, Lord Jesus, we uh, claim the blood of the covenant over your sanctuary, and we ask that you would cause us to preach your word, our Lord Jesus, and in his name, amen. Hey, uh, today's sermon is really a continuation, actually a level deeper from last week's uh, sermon, so hopefully you know a little bit about that. But in last week's sermon, I explained some things about the text, and then uh, I had you close your eyes as I read all the way through Ezekiel chapter 16. Through Ezekiel, whom God calls, and this is significant, son of man, God speaks to Jerusalem. And as you know, we are, or the church is, Jerusalem. He tells Jerusalem of how he found her, an infant abandoned in a field, how he spoke life into her, how she was naked and and bare, but she grew and became beautiful, and so he covered her nakedness, entered into a covenant with her, and clothed her with beauty. And yet she trusted her beauty and, quote-unquote, played the whore with any passerby. Nations, idols, And how she then sacrificed his children to those with whom she played the whore. How sick is your heart, asked the Lord God in verse 30. And then he says, because your nakedness, Erval, was uncovered in your whorings with your lovers, I will gather them against you from every side and will uncover your nakedness, your Erval, to them. So because you uncovered your nakedness to them, I will uncover your nakedness to them. That seems strange until you think it through and realize that the word nakedness should probably be translated genitals. So it makes some sense. But it's a bit terrifying. He then tells Jerusalem that her sins are worse than the sins of Sodom, and twice as bad as Samaria, from whence we get our word Samaritan that you'll read in the New Testament. And you know, a good Jew wouldn't even say the word Sodom. Then verse 52, 52, okay, after 51, so be ashamed, you also, and bear your kalima, uh, normally translated shame, be ashamed, bear your shame, for you have made your sister Sodom and Samaria appear righteous. Be ashamed, you also bear your shame, for you have made your sisters Jerusalem appear righteous. I will restore their fortunes, both the fortunes of Sodom and her daughters, and the fortunes of Samaria and her daughters, and I will restore your own fortunes in their midst, that you may bear your shame and be ashamed of all that you have done, becoming a consolation, a comfort to them. As for your sisters, Sodom and her daughters shall return to their former state. Samaria and her daughters shall return to their former state, and you and your daughters shall return to your former state. Was not your sister Sodom a byword in your mouth in the days of your pride? Before your wickedness, before your evil was uncovered? 
Now you have become an object of reproach for the daughters of Syria and all those around her, and for the daughters of the Philistines, those all around who despise you. You bear your lewdness and your abominations, declares the Lord. For thus says the Lord God, I will deal with you as you have done, you who have despised the oath and breaking the covenant. Yet I will remember my covenant with you in the days of your youth, and I will establish with you an everlasting and eternal covenant that you will remember your ways and be ashamed when you take your sisters, both your elder Samaria and your younger Sodom, and I give them to you as daughters, but not on account of the covenant with you. I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall know that I am the Lord. That you may remember and be confounded, be ashamed, and never open your mouth because of your shame. Literally, your shame face. Never open your mouth uh, because of your shame when I atone for you for all that you have done, declares the Lord God. <laughs> this is an absolutely mind-bogglingly wonderful chunk of Scripture. The promise to redeem Sodom, Samaria, and Jerusalem is absolutely beautiful, but last time I stopped partway through the, the reading to ask you how you were doing, because although it's hopeful, really hopeful, it also includes a lot of shame, right? and a lot of shaming, apparently at the hands of God. He appears to shame Jerusalem for causing her former lovers to, uh, he, he, by causing, he appears to shame Jerusalem by causing her former lovers, causing them to uncover her nakedness, her vaw in verse 25. And then it seems he shames her again but in a very different sort of way in verse 63 when she remembers something and he atones for all that she's done. Whatever the case, it's a lot of shame and a whole lot of shaming, and it seems that some of the shame doesn't go away. He says, you'll never open your mouth again. I guess that's in condemnation against Sodom and Samaria. You'll never open your mouth again because of your shame. Now, if you're like me, You've been a little confused about shame. I hear us say things like this. God loves you. He would never shame you. You're enough. You are sufficient. You are not a wretch. Don't give in to shame. And I think at times I've spoken as if shame is, is evil, but if God says, be ashamed, Perhaps it's not always evil to feel some shame. After our Chew the Fat meeting last week, I asked uh, John, John Perch, um, how he had heard guilt and shame defined in Imago Dei. It's this great counseling and prayer ministry that he's a part of. He emailed back and, and wrote, at the most basic level, guilt says, I did something bad. Shame says, I am bad. And now it's hard to imagine Jesus saying to someone, you are bad, right? And yet in Matthew, Jesus does say, make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree evil and its fruit evil. Now, the word 
that's translated there, evil, is also translated bad. There's just one for both of those usually in Greek. And then Jesus says this, how can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good person out of the good treasure brings forth good, and the evil person out of the evil treasure brings forth evil. Well, my experience of Peter Hyatt is that Peter Hyatt brings forth both good and evil. Which means that there's a good Peter and there's an evil Peter. But all that God makes is good, right? And God made everything, right? Which means the good Peter is the real Peter. And the bad Peter is the not real Peter, even though I think he's real. So when I am ashamed of me, maybe I'm ashamed of my false self. And so I hide my false self and pretend that he doesn't exist, but just in doing that, I actually make him exist. Like an empty space hidden deep within my being that I feel as shame, non-being in my being that I call shame. Maybe. I don't know. I'm just saying that shame is confusing. And our language about shame is confusing. And I suppose that's because the Bible's language about shame is confusing. Ezekiel 16, God says to Jerusalem, Be ashamed. Bear your shame. So you will comfort Sodom and Samaria and never open your mouth again because of your shame. Yet in Isaiah 54, God says to Jerusalem, same Jerusalem, sing, O barren one, and cry aloud, fear not, for you will not be ashamed. Be not shamed, for you will not be ashamed, for you will forget the shame of your youth. So, in summary, you'll never open your mouth because of your shame, but you'll sing praises having forgotten your shame. And it gets even, I, I think, uh, maybe a little weirder in the New Testament. So check this out. Jesus and Paul make it really clear that we are to judge not, that we be not judged, right? Which to me sounds like, don't shame people. But then 1 Corinthians 1, Paul writes, pay attention. God chose, are you chosen? Just ask yourself that. Are you chosen? That's what we say, right? God chose what is foolish to sh in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. Which clearly implies that you have a ministry of, of shame for just the fact that you are a weak fool whom God has chosen should shame the proud people around you. <laughs> so cheer up. It's working. I think, I think it's working. I'm just saying. We seem to define shame in all sorts of confusing ways. And I think that's partly because the Bible talks about shame in all sorts of, of different ways. So maybe we can't fully define shame with our words, and yet we all know it. Because we all feel it in our flesh every day. And now I'm going to remind you. So do what I say. Close your eyes. Okay, keep them closed till I tell you. Take a deep breath and find yourself. 
and now say to your adult self, you're just fine. So please, don't shut down. And now I want you to find your junior high self and say to that junior high self, I love you, but you need to grow up. No snickering. But you can laugh later. Okay, and now I want you to meditate upon your erva, your nakedness. Not someone else's erva, your own erva, your private parts. How do you feel? Frightened? Embarrassed? Nervous? Guilty? Hopeful? Disappointed, sad, excited, confused. I couldn't help but notice you all covered them before you came to church this morning. Thank you. Why did you do that? And now, eyes still closed, I want you to think about everything that you have done with those private parts. And everything you have wanted to do and not done with those private parts. Now that really is a private part of you, isn't it? Jesus said nothing is covered that will not be uncovered. Apocalypsis revealed or hidden that will not be made known. Now you can open your eyes. Okay, that thing that you were just feeling, it's called shame. At least that's how the Bible defines shame. First time the word appears, Genesis chapter two, verse 25, the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. They were not shamed, they didn't feel shame. But then something happened. The man and his wife came to know something, then felt something, then covered something and hid themselves. 
from God and from each other. That thing that they were feeling is called shame. 21 years ago, my mother was dressing my five-year-old son, Coleman, and his older sister, Elizabeth, that I talked about last week. Elizabeth happened to be in the room. Coleman insisted that they both leave while he was dressing, and my mom said, oh, Coleman, come on, come on. We don't need to leave. And Coleman said, but yeah, you do. You'll see my private parts. At that, my know-it-all 10-year-old daughter, Elizabeth, said, Coleman, we used to change your diapers. We saw your private parts a million times. And Coleman yelled, yeah, that was different, Elizabeth. That was different. That's different. That was, that was before I knew I had them. So here's the question. Did God or does God want my son Coleman to know that he has them? And here's the parallel question. Did God or does God want the Adam and the Eve, the mother of the living, to know that they have them? Because <laughs> you see, that knowledge has caused some problems, right? Are those private parts good or evil? And what was God thinking? Why did he make them like that? So I'm showing you this picture once again. It's a man hanging on a tree in a garden. The garden is at the beginning of time and the end of time and exists right now in the sanctuary of your own soul. It's not less real than this world. It's more real than this entire world, all of space and time. The man on the tree is the good in flesh and the life. He is also called wisdom. Wisdom is like living knowledge. So if you took his life, you'd gain knowledge of good and evil, but it would be dead. But if you received him who is life, you'd have wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. You would be known by love. The man on the tree is also called the eschatos Adam. That can be translated last Adam or ultimate Adam. He's the perfect image of the invisible God. He is who it is that you are to become. He is your judgment. And now you can perceive that as a threat, like become Jesus or else. Or you can receive it as a promise. As Francois Dutois says, Jesus is not another religion. Jesus is what God believes about you. <laughs> Jesus is God's judgment of you. Maybe he could even be God's judgment in you. Well, the man on the tree is the eschatos Adam, which makes all those people at the base of the tree the eschatos Eve. In other words, they are Jerusalem. They are Humanity, Adam in the Hebrew. In Hebrew, Adam, the first Adam. They, Adam, are the bride. They are the bride, and the man on the tree is the groom. When they surrender to his love in the sacrament of the covenant, they even become his body. One body filled with one spirit, the spirit of God. But in this picture, they're not one body. This is a picture of the sixth day of creation. 
How do we know that? Because on the seventh day, it is finished. They're all one, and everything is good. So what's wrong with people in this picture? The ones on the ground there, on the earth. What's wrong with those people? Well, this is hard to talk about because we need to talk about the edge of time and eternity. And what's wrong with these people is also what's right with these people. In other words, we need to talk about shame. We need to talk about shame. We, we, and we need to talk in a way that the church hasn't really talked for, I think, about 1,500 years. We need to start in Genesis 1 rather than Genesis 3. In other words, we need to start with God's success rather than our failure. In Genesis 1, God creates everything beginning to end. Big bang to the end of the ages. At the end of the ages, the endless seventh day, everything is good, and it is finished, it is perfected, it is completed. But in Genesis 2, everything is not completed, and all is not good, because God says something is not good. Even before the fall, he says something is not good, and God is still creating Adam. That means it's the sixth day of creation. And if you're not finished, if you're not entirely good, well, then that means it's still the sixth day of creation for you, too. So what is not good? Well, it's something about Adam that's not good. But of course, Adam doesn't know this. For Adam, that is humanity, does not yet have the knowledge of good and evil, which is the knowledge of what? The knowledge of God and not God. And therefore, Adam cannot love God in freedom because he doesn't know who God is. Adam is alone and incapable of love. God is love. And this is exactly what God says in Genesis 2, verse 18. Before the fall, while man still exists in a paradise garden with God, who is love, God says it's not good, and not good is bad. <laughs> it's not good that the Adam is alone. You see, something is seriously wrong with Adam. He does not seek God. And so he does not know God. And he cannot love God. God is Adam's helper. His azer in Hebrew. Azer is a masculine noun that never refers to a wife or a bride. But over and over again throughout the Old Testament, you go check it out, refers to God. Adam, humanity, can't seem to find his helper. So Genesis 2.18, his helper says, it's not good that the Adam is alone. I will make a helper fit for him. And at that, God puts Adam into a deep sleep and divides the Adam in two. Eve is still not Adam's helper. She's just another part of Adam. And Adam is not much of a helper for Eve. Amen? Can I get an e uh, amen, Kara? Can I get an amen? Amen on that. Yeah, no. Adam and Eve still can't find their helper. But God had planted this tree in the middle of the garden. One tree that looks like two, or two trees that look like one in one spot. You see, this is the tree. And what is on that tree? Her helper. The helper 
made fit or about to be made fit for, for Adam, who is humanity, who is Jerusalem, that is the bride of Christ. So what's wrong with the people in this picture? Well, humanity is alone, and she cannot find her helper. Her helper speaks. In fact, he's always speaking. Nothing would exist if it were not for the fact that he's constantly speaking. Her helper is always speaking, but she doesn't know that his word is good, for she has no knowledge of good or evil. In fact, on the tree, her helper actually prays, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. The night before he had prayed, this is eternal life, that they know you. They don't, they don't know what they do, but, 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 but this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. They will know evil and die. But if the good will know them, well, then they might have life. So what's wrong with the people in this picture? What's wrong with the people in this room What's wrong with humanity? Humanity does not have faith in her helper. Humanity does not, in other words, trust God. So humanity cannot love God, which means humanity is not yet finished in the image of God, who is love. God is love. It's not that some are the image of God and some are not the image of God. It's not that some are good and some are not good. It's that all are part good and all are part not good, which is bad, that is evil. It is that all are unfinished. So what's wrong with this world? I think this says it's best. It, it's half-baked. Something tells me this thing's only half-baked. What's wrong with the people in this room? Look around. Look at them. I'll tell you what it is. They're half-baked. What's wrong with everyone you meet walking around in this world? They're all half-baked. Half so how do we get fully baked? Well, that has everything to do with the helper made fit for you, and everything to do with those parts of you that you want to cover up. Everything to do with that place of shame. So last time I asked you, what is shame? And we said, isn't it an awareness of your need for help? And what are you ashamed of? We said, isn't it a place where you need help. And then we asked, what is salvation? And, and we said, well, isn't it getting help from your helper? And what is sin? Well, isn't it trying to get help from the wrong helpers in the wrong way? And why would we ever do that? Well, obviously, isn't it because we don't trust our helper or his word? In fact, we take the advice of a snake. And what does the snake say? The snake says, you don't need help. Help yourself. Take fruit. Take fruit from the tree and make yourself in the image of God. And that's exactly what we do. Every time we take knowledge of the good, think that we make ourselves good and then feel proud. 
but more alone, which is not good. And that's exactly what Jerusalem did that Friday when we took the life of the good in flesh in a garden on a tree that we now call the cross. The growing knowledge of that fact is why you feel shame. Shame is not simply a theological or psychological concept you learn in some book. Shame is a growing knowledge in the depths of your being that you are incomplete. And you cannot complete yourself. You need a helper. You are right now being tempted to cover that place of shame with fig leaves, self-justifications, works of the flesh, ego, arrogance, pride. And you are right now being romanced into surrendering that place of shame to your helper, romanced by God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And now let me share with you the good news. Although Coleman dressed himself alone for 20 years, that's Coleman, there is one person with whom he's willing to share his private parts. Now remember, no shutting down, right? We said no shutting down. There is one person with whom Coleman is willing to share his shame. And she is my daughter-in-law, Natalie, who is willing to share her shame with Coleman. And here is the utterly, shockingly good news. She is actually attracted to Coleman's place of shame. And Coleman is thoroughly attracted to her place of shame. And when they share their places of shame, they experience that communion of shame, not as shame, but as ecstasy. And in that moment, neither of them feels so what? All alone, right? They don't feel shame, and they don't feel all alone. And it gets even better. Something may just come of this communion of shame, and if it does, I will call that something my grandbaby. <laughs> now, some of you just shut down. In the name of Jesus and under the authority of the blood, I say to you, do not shut down. Why'd you shut down? Let me guess. This won't cover everyone, but I'm going to guess. Maybe you want what Coleman has, but it hasn't happened. And the fact that it hasn't happened has broken your heart, and you are utterly disappointed in God, but you try to cover it up and act like it's okay. Come to church, and lo and behold, I bring it up. Or maybe you want what Coleman has, but not in the way that Coleman has it. I mean, maybe you're attracted to members of the same sex, and, well, you just can't help it. You're not sure what's wrong or what's right. I'm not entirely sure what's wrong or what's right, but you're deeply disappointed in God, and you try to cover it up and just act like it, oh, it's just okay, but I just brought it up. 
Or maybe you were happily married and you tasted what Coleman has, but you were unfaithful and your partner was unfaithful. Everything blew up. You're deeply disappointed in yourself, a bit scared of, of God, but you know, you just try to cover it up and act like everything's okay, but I just brought it up. Or maybe, maybe you were violated in a horrific way and it's not your fault, but the pain and the shame was just too much and so you cover it up and you act like everything's okay, but I just brought it up. Or maybe you've been married, maybe you've been married 38 years and you turned 60 this summer and your body's old and things just don't work like they used to work and it makes you sad, but you try to cover it up, but you gotta preach on it and the word of God just keeps bringing it up. Or maybe you're just like Coleman, but now the honeymoon's over, the thrill is gone, you think there's got to be more, so you're tempted to stray, but you feel ashamed that you might stray, and so you cover it up. You cover up your lack of faith in love, and what do you do? Well, you pretend to love, or maybe you lack faith, faith that love is good, and his word is grace. You try to have faith, you fake faith, you pretend to trust, even though you don't trust, and so you feel ashamed. And you hide that place from God, convinced that God will reject you. If you only got a good look at you in that place in the depths of your being. You feel ashamed and rejected and so you look for solace and other helpers like possessions, addictions, power and shame, uh, fame, but that just leads to more shame and so you tell yourself, I'm a rock, I'm an island and a rock never cries and I, uh, an island never cries. Rock feels no shame in an island, never cries. <laughs> but you do cry. So now let me share the good news. God is attracted to that place. that place that you try to hide. He is attracted to you and to that place like a young bridegroom is attracted to his bride and her place of shame. I'm saying that God finds your lonely, battered, broken, and empty heart to be profoundly sexy. And when you offer that heart to other lovers, his heart is lonely, battered, broken, and empty too. It's empty for you. It's not about genitals. They are a sacramental representation of that place in which you need help. That's what circumcision's all about. It's not about genitals, it's about your heart. It's not about genitals, it's about the empty place in your soul that we sometimes call shame. It's not about genitals. God made Adam male and female before the fall to give us a sign, nurture hope, and cause us to seek our helper. Because you see, you actually do need help. You need serious help. I mean, you are seriously inadequate. You are seriously insufficient and wretchedly alone. In fact, apart from your helper, you can do absolutely nothing, including asking for help. 
Your helper is your wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. He is faith, hope, and love in you. He completes you. He helps you by giving you himself. And yet, he will not rape you. I'm convinced of that. He will not rape you, and so he romances you in the hope that you would surrender to love, surrender your shame, and bear the fruit that is life. And that is how your shame is transformed into everlasting joy. Ezekiel 16, 60, God says to Jerusalem, I will establish for you an everlasting and eternal covenant. Then, and he says this will happen, then you will remember your ways and be ashamed when you take your sisters, both Samaria and Sodom, and I give them to you as daughters. Jerusalem's arrogance is revealed, uncovered, it's revealed as, as shame, and then it is transformed into compassion for Sodom and Samaria. Once you get in touch with your need for grace, then you will have grace on everyone around you. You'll forget your shame, and yet you will be fueled by your shame. You just won't experience shame as shame, but as this ecstatic communion of joy. I mean, you will sing amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me, and be excited to tell people, saved a wretch like me, and I will sing amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like you, and we will sing amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like us. Zephaniah 3.19, I will save the lame. That's who he saves. <laughs> Isn't it great to be saved? I will save the lame, gather the outcasts, and I will change their shame into praise. See, there's a purpose for shame. It's how God manufactures joy. And even how he manufactures you and those around you. In Ezekiel 16, God says to Jerusalem, I will give Sodom and Samaria to you as daughters. I think that that means they'll not only be like daughters, but they will be daughters. And you see, mothers give birth. Birth involves labor, right? So don't think that this doesn't involve some labor. But mothers, but mothers know that what they give birth to, they didn't make, right? Mothers give birth to daughters. Galatians 4, Paul writes this. The Jerusalem above is our mother. You are actually born from the pain and the shame of those that have gone before you, those that have surrendered their shame to the word of God and borne the fruit of God that is now Christ in you. <laughs> and that, my friends is the real you. Paul writes that the Jerusalem above is our mother, and then he quotes Isaiah 54, which, surprise, surprise, comes immediately after Isaiah 53, which is a description of the cross. He bore the sin of many, makes intercession for the transgressors. Next verse, sing, O barren one who did not bear, break forth into singing and cry aloud, you who have not been in labor, for the children of the desolate one will be more than the children of her who is married, says the Lord. Enlarge the place of your tent. Let the curtains of your habitations be stretched out and do not hold back. Lengthen your cords, strengthen your stakes, for you will spread abroad to the right and to the left, and your offspring will possess the nations and will people the desolate cities. Fear not, for you will not be ashamed. Be not shamed, for you will not be ashamed. For you will forget the shame of your youth and the reproach of your widowhood. You will remember no more, for your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. The Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. The God of the whole earth, he is called. So when you feel ashamed, 
and try to hide your shame or cover your shame from your helper. You take knowledge from the tree in the middle of the garden in order to justify yourself with works of the flesh. It might look good for a time, but you crucify the life and everything dies. The works of the flesh are faithlessness, licentiousness, idolatry, competition, envy, anger, etc., etc., etc. But if, on the other hand, when you feel shame, you surrender your shame to the one who gives you his life on the tree in the middle of the garden, he will implant his life like a seed in your place of shame. It might look messy for a time. In fact, it will look messy for a time, but you will bear the fruit of life that is life. You will literally give birth to the Son of Man in you and your neighbor. See, the works of the flesh really are work, 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 work work. And the fruit of the Spirit is literally fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is love. And God is love. I think that means any real love is God. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness. And in Greek, it's not faithfulness. It's faith. You see, that's the thing that Adam lacked in the garden before the fall. Surrendered shame is how you are made in the image and likeness of God. Almost as if God consigned all men to disobedience that he might have mercy on all. And that changes everything. Changes everything about every moment of every day. Because the way you change is not by taking knowledge and trying harder. The way you change is by surrendering shame and trusting mercy. That's why I hope you come to worship. Not to receive more information that you can then apply to your life, but to surrender your shame and receive the word of grace. That's why I hope you have some sort of small group or prayer partner or something. Not so you can share information and hold each other accountable. That's death. But so you can confess your shame and then look each other in the eye and speak the gospel. You are thoroughly loved and entirely forgiven. That's the gospel. That's the seed that'll get you all pregnant. And I think that's the only hope for saving your marriage. It's not trying to change or demanding that your spouse changes. It's all about revealing your battered, broken, and lonely heart, your shame. And then if your spouse reveals his or her battered, broken, and lonely heart, it's not about fixing it. It's about speaking a word into it. I forgive you. And I hope that you would forgive me too. That word is not your word. That's God's word, spoken through you into the most, spoken through you into the most sacred of all places, the place of surrendered shame. You want to know my shame in recent years? And I need to tell you, it's like a circle of shame. I'm ashamed that I'm shamed about this or feel shame. I don't know how to make a church grow. I used to be known for that. 
I mean, a church that went from like 60 to a whole lot, a few thousand. Now I think I shrunk a church from a few thousand down to like 60. A while ago, I said to my wife, I said, honey, God, would you just please pray for me? I have this picture. I keep seeing it in my head. I'm just digging holes because Jesus is asking me to dig holes. I just keep digging holes, and he comes right behind me and just keeps filling them in. And she said, huh. I just heard Jesus say, but Peter, that's the way you plant trees. Do you suppose that Jesus is walking behind us, dropping a seed in every place of surrendered shame? Actually, he is the seed. He's the promised seed. Pretty cool. But this does leave a final question. Does God shame us? Or put us to shame? See, maybe you have to expose a place of shame to fertilize that shame. But like I said, I'm convinced that God will not rape us. But maybe he does take us to places where all our walls start to crumble and the armor that we have constructed begins to fail. I am shielded in my armor, hiding in my room, safe within my womb. I touch no one and no one touches me. You know why I used to take my kids camping? So they'd get scared. And snuggle up next to me in the tent. Coleman would put his nose right on my nose and stare me in the eyes. You know why I took my girlfriend to see Alien? On like our sixth date? So that she'd feel vulnerable so that she'd get scared, feel vulnerable, and hang on to my arm the entire movie. Was that evil? I don't think so. Resulted in four children and a whole lot of life. In the middle of Ezekiel 16, God puts Jerusalem to shame. Babylonians invade. They breach the walls, and Jerusalem's defenses crumble, but she still won't surrender her shame to the one who is love. At the end of Ezekiel 16, the one who is loved says, I will establish for you an everlasting, eternal covenant. Then you will be ashamed. You shall know that I am the Lord and be ashamed when I atone for you for all that you have done. He will not rape us. But will we rape him? Have we twisted the truth, taken the life, abused the good? You know, there might be one thing wrong with that picture. It's pretty clear from what we know of ancient history that Jesus was crucified naked. And it wasn't sexy. We were trying to shame him.
And yet it's there that I think he's made fit for us, our helper. But we were trying to shame him. For the joy that was set before him, writes the author of Hebrews, he endured the cross, despising the shame. So he didn't enjoy it either. But he did it for the joy that was set before him. What's the joy that was set before him? Well, that's easy. It's communion with you in the sanctuary of the covenant. And so our helper took the bread and he broke it, saying, this is my body given to you. Take it, eat it. Do it in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper and having given thanks, he took the cup and he said, this is the cup of the covenant, also called the eternal covenant, in my blood, poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Drink of it, all of you. Do it in remembrance of me. In your place of shame. Amen. Amen. So, Father, we just confess to you. Some, uh, you now, I'm not doing this because I have to do this, okay? Because you live this life every minute of every day. But, but if it helps right now, just say this prayer with me. Um, Father, we confess that you're scary. God, you're scary. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you're scary to us because you're good and we're not entirely good. And we're becoming aware of that. And so we're tempted to shut down, to put up our walls, to build our defenses. So just, you can in the silence of your heart and just say, yep, that's me, God, I did that, I do that. That's called confession. And this is the word of grace. You are forgiven, for you have always and always will be thoroughly loved. So you need to sit in the presence of that um, reality every day. Live there, and your heart begins to unfold like a flower before him. And don't worry, it takes a lifetime. I talk about this stuff, but I really struggles with this stuff. <laughs> and yet it's true. In Jesus' name, we pray these things, Father. Amen.
Sorry, but I love that song. And I used to think that it was about hell, you know, and by that I mean Hades, the place that we're all tempted to hide. And the fire of God, the love of God, which burns even down to the depths of hell. And then one day I realized, no, it's about sex. And now I realize, hey, it's about both. See, we all have one thing in common. Sodom, Samaria, Jerusalem. We each know shame, for we have all been destined for ceaseless communion with infinite grace. Your helper will turn your shame into ceaseless praise. So in the name of Jesus, believe the gospel and don't shut down. Amen? Amen? Now, before you go, real quick, let me say, if you want to, we do this chew the fat thing. If you want to be part of our kind of our discussion group, just email me and I'll send you a link for chew the fat on Tuesdays at 6. Also, um, what I'm preaching in terms of a systematic theology is four-point Calvinism, if that helps any of you. But we haven't, really, we haven't really talked about Scripture, I think, in the proper, in a, in a holistic kind of way for a long time. I have these, if, if you get these two books online or here at the church, um, it talks about kind of this paradigm, the history of time and the genesis of you and God and His body, which used to be titled God and His sexy body because of the stuff in this sermon, but we changed the title to make it more appetizing. But anyway, if you uh, get those, proceeds go to the church, it will help you... Uh, kind of understand those, those concepts. And lastly, if you'd like prayer, Ted is down front here. Ted is a great guy to pray with. So if you'd like to pray with someone, he'd love to pray with you. See you next week.